I've gone trail running a few times with one of our plant and wildlife science professors at BYU, who's an expert in trees and mountain ecosystems. I ask questions about the landscape and its ecology as we go, and as he explains the whys and hows of everything around us, I become acutely aware that he views the natural world through a very different set of eyes or lenses. He was seeing things that I didn't, or perhaps more accurately, he knew how to see things differently. Welcome to Writing Westward. I'm your host, Brendan Rensink. It's a profound experience to have an expert take something that you're familiar with and open it up to reveal whole new worlds hidden within. I'm hoping our conversation today with Dr. Ellen Wohl, Professor of Geosciences at Colorado State University, will do the same for you as we discuss her 2021 and 2022 Oregon State University Press books, Something Hidden in the Ranges, The Secret Life of Mountain Ecosystems, and Deadwood, The Afterlife of Trees. Thanks for listening. For new listeners, allow me to take a moment to explain a bit about Writing Westward and myself. Each episode features a conversation with people writing about the North American West. Historians, journalists, novelists, poets, scientists, sociologists, and others. By showcasing their work, I hope to spark your curiosity to think more deeply about the region, its lands and environments, and the histories and experiences of the peoples who call it home. If a writer or topic intrigues you, you can find links to their work in the show notes or at writingwestward.org. And if you have a moment, please do subscribe, share links with friends, leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're using to listen, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and send in some feedback. Writing Westward is supported by the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University, where I, Brendan Rensink, serve as Associate Director and an Associate Professor of History. For better or worse, this is a one-man operation with me playing role of host, producer, sound engineer, publicist, and everything else, all tasks for which I have no training. But I am passionate about the North American West, so this difficult work is well worth the excuse to read more books and talk to interesting people. At the end of each episode, I'll include a little bit more information about me and my scholarship and about the Red Center, our public programming and projects and funding opportunities that you could apply for. With that, let me introduce a little bit more about today's guest and why we're talking to them. Dr. Ellen Wall is a university distinguished professor in the Department of Geosciences at Colorado State University. Her primary focus of scientific study and writing is on rivers and all their complexity and how they interact with biogeochemistry of their surroundings and how they interact with and impact ecological and human communities. She has conducted fieldwork around the globe, but lives in and has an affinity for the American West. Her two most recent books, Something in the Ranges, The Secret Life of Mountain Ecosystems, and Deadwood, The Afterlife of Trees, were published by Oregon State University Press in 2021 and 2022, respectively. They are aimed at us, the non-scientist. They're gracefully written and effectively translate otherwise incomprehensibly complex environmental processes and relationships into languages and forms that everyone can understand, even me. It's really a remarkable feat. In Something in the Ranges, Wool traces a number of what she calls hidden flows, transfers and relationships of energy, resources, nutrients, and other things between the innumerable actors that make up ecosystems, animate and inanimate, large and microscopic, plant, mammal, insect, fish, microbe, all of it. She helps us see the interconnectedness of the landscape. In Deadwood, 
Wool offers a narrative biography of three trees and their rivers, all in places not managed by humans with no history of commercial timber, arguing that you can't tell the story of a river without its trees. She tells us about an Engelman spruce in Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado along the St. Brain Creek, a western red cedar along the Keats River on the western slopes of the Olympic Mountains in Washington State, and a balsam poplar along the Ketchika River, which is a tributary to the Leard and Mackenzie Rivers in Canada. From germination to death, she then traces the long afterlife of these trees and the tremendously overlooked influence that they have on the natural world, both close at hand and even thousands of miles away. These are books that all Westerners would benefit from reading. They're slim and easy to move through, but they will fundamentally change how you view and think about the natural world. As I said in this episode introduction, it's a profound experience to have an expert take something that you're familiar with and open it up to reveal whole new worlds hidden within. By so doing, Wool's work helps us to not only view the natural world differently, but to approach it with curiosity, interest, and humility. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Professor Ellen Wall, welcome to Writing Westward. Thank you. Uh, I want to start by telling you uh, how excited I was to uh, read these books. And uh, as a evidence of kind of the excitement and enthusiasm, I was reading them last week uh, in a cabin outside of West Yellowstone and literally looking out the window every other page because I could see things that you were talking about in the books. And then later that evening, we were outside, I was outside with my family and I was trying, there were some of the, what you call soil snakes, these things left by voles underneath the snowpack. And I was trying to explain to them how they're made and so enthusiastic about it. And then quickly realized I didn't know what, still didn't know what I was talking about. So I had to go back inside and get the book and read them like the little paragraph. But anyways, I was so excited for my newfound knowledge, but it wasn't quite as uh, firm as I thought it was. <laughs> oh, that's great. And, you know, um, repetition is the key to learning. So if you had to tell it to them, that'll help you remember too. Exactly. But yeah, I'm really delighted that it's inspiring you when you're in the type of landscape for which it, or about which it was written. Tell us, how and when did you start asking questions about the natural world and kind of why it was the way it was, or, or or when and how did you start playing scientist and decide to go down this career path? Uh, essentially, as long as I can remember, my father was a high school science teacher, and we used to go out and do science projects when I was in elementary school. Um, part of it, I think it started with me tagging along with uh, my dad and his high school students, because I grew up in Ohio, and they had a really active uh, annual science fairs that, that his students always entered. So I watched what they were doing and I was, I love the natural world. I think that's from about the time I was uh, conscious of anything around me. So I was really intrigued by being able to ask questions and then make observations or collect data that could allow you to start to address those questions or answer those questions. So it started really early. When did you first start coming out West? Uh, again, that's from actually that's from before I can remember. We have family photos of me and a carrier on each of my parents' backs when I was uh, a baby. So uh, probably the first summer after I was born, I would guess. Mm -hmm. And then did you, did you take trips out west later as a teen or then in college? Uh, well, we did a summer vacation to the west every single year because both my parents were teachers and they taught in summer school, but we had part of the summer for vacations. And then as soon as I graduated from high school, we all moved to Arizona. 
So pretty much I, I've lived in the Western U.S. since I was 17. Were you struck by differences kind of in the natural world? That, I mean, because a lot of your work, you've worked all over the world, but at least for these two books, you know, it's very much kind of a lot of it's the Mountain West. Um, do, do you remember kind of your early impressions of of the Mountain West or Arizona versus the Ohio that you grew up in? Yeah, I, I should preface this by saying that Ohio was a, a wonderful place to grow up. I was in a semi-rural area and there were a lot of natural looking areas around me in the sense of being forested. They were second growth. They had had agriculture or um, timber harvest in the past and they were small, but it was a very nice place to be a child. The immediate difference that that you know, I noticed in the West is that everything is on a larger scale. There were national parks. At the time I grew up, there were no national parks in Ohio or much of that that area around Ohio. There were big national parks in the West, um, big forests. Some of them had never been harvested for timber, so they were old growth. It was just a much larger and more natural appearing landscape because the population density was so much less. Again, this was in the 60s and 70s. And now that I have lived in Arizona and Colorado, the population density is is getting closer to what I grew up with in the Midwest. But at the time I was growing up, there were very low population densities in many of the Western states. So I think it was the combination of the the sense of open space and a, a more natural landscape that was very attractive. Growing up, I, I was really fascinated by the Native American history and the pioneer history in Ohio but that was, they were both much more immediate in the Western U.S. There are still Native American tribes and, and reservations, and the pioneer history was only you know, a century earlier as opposed to a couple centuries earlier in Ohio. Yeah, and it's much more kind of present in the kind of just like cultural discourse out here in the West, kind of the pioneer heritage thing. It's much more part of, kind of intentionally part of people's identity, I think. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm always um I always laugh when we bring people here to campus and you know even people who have seen mountains before and I we cuz uh BYU uh, the Wasatch Front Range just goes straight up from, you know, <laughs> from the edge of campus almost and people are always like, you know, I've seen mountains but I I remember, oh no, but I am back home, you know, say in Ohio or somewhere like those are hills, uh not mountains. Or even with forests, you know, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest up on the Canadian border on the coast and um my forests up there are covered in moss and the trees are huge and we have forests here in utah but whenever i go back home to washington i'm like oh no no no! this this is a forest kind of the scope and the scale of it so much so much bigger um yeah it, it can work in both directions but whatever you grew up with definitely influences your perceptions of subsequent of places that you subsequently visit you, these two books are um full of all kinds of really detailed scientific information, but they clearly were not written for scientists. You, I mean, you really uh, do a remarkable job of really uh, gracefully kind of holding our hands and leading us through, like telling narratives and stories of scientific processes, which is really great. Um, why do you think it's important? Why was it important for you to kind of aim these books at, um, you know, quote unquote, normal people, like not scientists? Maybe so like so people who enjoy the outdoors, why is it important for them to understand some of the science of what's going on around them in these natural worlds that they love rec you know doing recreation in? And you can appreciate and love natural environments in a variety of different ways, and they're all important. So you can have essentially an emotional or almost a, a spiritual or religious response. 
and be very upset when things are altered, when a forest is clear-cut, for example, or a stream is dammed. And that's very important. But I think it's equally important to understand from a scientist's perspective the functions that these natural environments serve. And that's less accessible. So scientists communicate with each other through what are called peer-reviewed journals. They're, they're typically very technical. It's hard for scientists in one discipline sometimes to read articles in another discipline. And people you know, say, oh, you use jargon. Jargon is just a shorthand way of describing things. It's very efficient. So if I want to use a screwdriver and I need to know if it's got just a, a single blade on it or the cross, you know, do I call it a, a Phillips head? Well, if you don't know what a Phillips head is, it means nothing, but it's cumbersome to describe the screwdriver using other terms. So it's the same thing with science, but it does make the basic scientific research less accessible to people, besides the fact that many of those journals require a subscription that can be quite expensive. But I think it's critical that people understand not only what scientists do, that we're not operating in this black box that's, that's mysterious and then knowledge just comes out, but also that the people who are not scientists understand the products of that knowledge. And, and I'll give you an example, the recent Supreme Court decision that really strips protection from things like uh, watersheds that do not have, or excuse me, not watersheds, wetlands that do not have surface water connections to streams. That flies in the face of all of the scientific understanding of the importance of those wetlands, because even if they are geographically isolated part of the year, they often have a surface water connection during some part of the year, or they have a subsurface water connection. But if you don't know that, if you don't understand the importance of that, you could say, well, yeah, okay, so we don't need to protect those. Or you know, you could look at just about anything in the natural world and say, well, yeah, old growth forests are nice, but, you know, trees grow back. It doesn't matter. If you don't know anything about the body of scientific research that has shown how fundamentally different a forest is when it reaches old growth status, which is usually after 200 years, you know, you could say, well, yeah, sure, we can cut them. They'll grow back. But <laughs> if you know something about the processes and why those environments are important, I think it's just another depth of understanding and appreciation. And that may translate into advocacy for protecting those environments, whether it's through your own actions and thinking about what you do or how you vote or social activity, or, um, I guess I should say political activities. So that's why I think it's important to write for a non-specialist audience. Yeah, and it's important not just for those who enjoy going out to these places, but you know, people who live in the most urban of settings, uh, they often don't think about themselves as living as a part of the natural world, but they are. And things happening in the mountains where their water comes from, you know, hundreds of miles away, might really impact them. I mean, th over the last few weeks, like the eastern United States was getting a taste of the wildfire smoke. The western United States has been complaining about for you know a lot over the last few years, and. And they're like, wait, this is coming all the way from Canada? Like, how is that right? Um, far, far off places can have really profound impacts on us. Um, Absolutely. There have been, I don't know if I should call them jokes or sort of like gee whiz statements of, you know, oh, people who live in cities don't know that milk comes from a cow or things like that. Maybe they're true, maybe they're not. But when you are faced with the immediacy of consequences of changes in the natural world, you become more aware and concerned. And you mentioned the wildfire smoke. Another one is the Colorado River. 
and the severe drought and the limited water supplies and the uh, ongoing attempts to try and renegotiate water compacts that affect several million people. So, and all the extremes that are happening with climate change. I just read this week that they're setting these new records for sustained high temperatures, including overnight in parts of both the US, I think it was Texas, and then in parts of Southern Asia. And that's affecting human survivability uh, for people who don't have air conditioning or have other limitations on their ability to find a, a shelter from that extreme heat. So yes, I think everyone needs to be aware of and understand some of the processes in the natural world, even if they live in the middle of the biggest city on the planet. One thing I like about the books is that how you take, you explain these processes. Um, you, you mean, you write, you use kind of the adage that the the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. You know, that really applies to the natural world. You know, an ecosystem is more than just the trees or the animals or the water, which some people can go out and see like, oh yeah, I get trees. I, I get that. Yeah. Some birds roost in those trees. Um, but it's not just the parts, but it's the ecosystem is how they interact. And those interactions are unbelievably complex and um, often uh, unanticipated how things are interacting with each other. That's the fun of, you know, this kind of exploration. Um, you write that um, kind of this seemingly incomprehensible complexity and interconnected interconnectedness um, should really uh, breed a lot of humility in us. In our interactions with the world. I really like, I re, that's kind of one of the big takeaways I took away is, but we can't ever assume that we really completely understand what's going on. And we need to approach how we alter the natural world then with a lot of care and humility. Well, in these two books, there's, there's so much to cover. And um, so I'm going to try to stay kind of, uh, you know, 10,000 foot level here or 30, however high it is, airplanes fly, um, and kind of look at the macro. Um, I want to start with something hidden in the ranges. You talk about what you call hidden flows, and then you kind of tell these narrative, narratives kind of tracing these different flows as you're trying to explain, explain how different zones within mountain ecosystems, in this book specifically, Rocky Mountain National Park, um, how those ecosystems work. Could you kind of give us your quick list of what some of the flows are that you're using kind of as your narrative device here? Yeah, I'll, I'll start with a, a watershed that is um, one of my favorites in the park, the Lockvale watershed. 98% of that park is designated as wilderness. So you hike up to Lockvale and if it's a lake, a subalpine lake, and it's a pretty good climb. Um, you get up there and you feel like you've really achieved something. It's not that far, but there's it's a steep elevation gain. It seems like you're in the middle of a pristine wilderness. And you have this feeling of being really apart from the cities at the base of the mountains. But that watershed is, and the, the lake and the soils and streams surrounding it are right on the threshold of becoming acidified. And that's a result of atmospheric deposition of nitrate, which is a nutrient. But when you get too much of it, it's not a good thing. So nitrate coming in from the atmosphere mainly from the cities and agricultural areas at the base of the mountains. So you're in this place that seems remote and pristine, but there's this very heavy pollutant load coming in from both what's called wet deposition with rain and snow and dry deposition, just tiny particles of silt and clay filtering down through the atmosphere. There was a study of national parks throughout the U.S., including those in Alaska, and many of them have very severe atmospheric deposition problems with a variety of pollutants, whether it's pesticides or heavy metals or excess nutrients. 
And these are going, I mean, these are going upstream in a way. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think many people are familiar with the idea that agricultural runoff from fertilizers and stuff often introduces lots of phosphorus and nitrogen, you know, into downstream lakes, which cause, you know, like here we have problems with these large like algae blooms, but you're talking about it going in the opposite direction, which I think is going to surprise a lot of people. So a city or agricultural lands down in the valley can actually deposit nitrates and other things up at the tops of the mountains. Yeah, we we have what are called upslope winds here, as many mountainous regions do. So yes, the the in, during certain times of the year, the water and the air is moving from the Gulf of Mexico towards the northwest across the plains and into the Rockies and en route. It goes over the giant urban corridor that goes, stretches north and south of Denver and picks up a lot of these pollutants. Uh, but if I go back to Lock Vale for a minute, so that's one invisible flow. Another one that might be more like what people are thinking of in the sense that it follows topography would be um, tracing the river that flows down out of the lake. There's the surface water that everybody who hikes up there can see, but there's a, a sort of an underground mirror of that surface water, something called the hyperreic zone. Hyperreic are just from the Greek words for flow below. So it's water that starts in the stream, goes into the ground for a short distance, and then returns to the stream. It's really moving through the sand and gravel and cobbles below the stream bed. There are microbial communities in there that are very good at taking up nitrate. For example, um, they biologically process it and reduce the amount of nitrate in the stream. The water is cooled by going through the hyperreic zone. The amount of dissolved oxygen changes. So you don't see a hyperreic zone unless you happen to see a little return flow on the floodplain that's like a little spring bubbling up. But otherwise, it's invisible, but it's very important. And there are flows of organisms along that creek. So there are fish and aquatic insects, for example, that move up and downstream over the course of their life cycle or sometimes over the course of a day. So flows going in both directions. There are nutrients that have come out of the soil into the stream that are moving downstream with the water, but they don't move at the same rate. They may get taken up by an insect, which is then eaten by a fish, or the insect may emerge and be eaten by a bird or a spider. So there's this, what ecologists call nutrient spiraling, where the nutrient moves through different places where it's stored temporarily as it gradually moves downstream. So those are some of the examples of what I was talking about with the the hidden flows, but those are what support what we see. So you wouldn't have the same water quality or the same organisms living in the stream if you didn't have hyperreic exchange or some of those uh, nutrient movements or the organisms moving up and downstream, even though for the most part, we can't see them. Yeah. You write a lot about how we can't see them because it's taking place underground, which is especially fascinating with trees and thinking about their root systems and, um, yeah, I mean... If you were to really ask people uh, to think about the entirety of an ecosystem, eventually I think they would realize like, oh yeah, stuff underground as well. But I think often we just, we, we take the world we can see as kind of the entirety of what there is. And that's just not not the case. Talk to us a little bit about um, about fungus and bacteria and tree roots. <laughs> so here, here's, I, I mean, there's a lot of really interesting hidden flows happening beneath our feet, which uh, in terms of, you know, the overall health and viability of a single tree or a forest, so much of it's taking place out of sight underground. Um, talk to us about some of those hidden flows. 
Yeah, that's been uh, definitely a, a revelation, I think, among forest ecologists over the last couple of decades. You know, when you when you were talking, I was thinking that that people have recognized interconnectedness in natural systems for a long time. John Muir famously said, you know, when you try to pick apart anything in the universe, you find it hitched to everything else, or I'm paraphrasing, but something to that effect. And others have said that. But what scientists can do is is figure out some of the details of those interconnections and those flows, exactly what they are and and what their importance is. And with trees, um, people have now begun to refer to the rhizosphere, which is this world in the soil. And they found that certain species of trees communicate with each other chemically and they even help each other. So if there are trees that are stressed, uh, in some species, other trees, often more mature trees than the, the stress tree, will basically send them nutrients through these, what are sometimes called fungal nets and fungal bridges. So if you close your eyes and imagine the soil, you might just think of a, a dark mass of maybe sand, silt, and clay, but think of it as just teeming with life. There are all sorts of very small organisms besides the big ones that we can see like earthworms or, or burrowing small mammals. And many of these organisms are different types of fungi, bacteria, microbes. They form communities. There, there's definitely an ecosystem down there. They're, each one is just trying to get on with its life cycle and find its own food. But in the course of doing that, they have evolved adaptations so that they get certain things from the tree roots, but they also give certain things to the tree roots. And these fungal nets and bridges, you know, think of this, I don't know, something like a, a really complicated highway interchange, but in the soil with microbes and fungi that connects individual trees. You know, the, the trees, unless they're a species that sends out rhizomes and, and they literally are clones like an aspen, mm -hmm. they're individual organisms, but they can exchange chemical signals and nutrients through these, these fungal communities that connect them. So it's, it's a really different way of thinking at the soil and it's mostly invisible, but it's not that invisible. I, I'm not advocating everybody go out and dig shallow soil pits in the national park. But for example, if you're in the Western US and you see these mounds at the base of many trees that are full of old pine cone scales, you know, a lot of species of squirrels will strip the seeds from the cones and create this midden, like a trash midden that grows year after year. And they, these can be a couple of feet high and several feet across. That's very loose organic rich soil. If you just take your hand and dig into it just a few inches, you often see this sort of like white scum mm -hmm. or white threads through there. Those are some of these fungi. Yeah. And that's a visible manifestation of all the things going on in the subsurface. Yeah. I think people are like, ooh, gross, you know, fungus or oh, oh bacteria or, you know, but yeah, these are all like essential components of this whole, this whole system. And it's interesting because we're almost, it almost sounds like we're giving trees agency in a way like that, I mean, they're not like choosing, well, I'm going to send nutrients over to this other tree, but they're, it, it's moving up a little bit closer to sentience, but, um, but yeah, but these are living organisms and the way their system works, they, yeah, they, they trade things back and forth. They help each other, which, um, I don't know, really kind of reframes how you think about, um, again, we, we know they're, we all say they're living, but are they that much more living than a rock essentially i think for a lot of people but this kind of stuff makes us think oh wow like there's there's a lot going on here 
I remember yeah. you talk a lot about beetles and how the trees, you know, react to these, you know, these pine beetles and they put out these, this resin or these poisonous gases, like they're defending, they're attacking, they're, there's all kinds of wild stuff going on. <laughs> there is. And, and if I can do a commercial for two other books, you, you were talking about fungi and bacteria. I read a fantastic book called Never Home Alone. That's about bacteria. And it's it's about the bacteria in your house. Fortunately, the vast majority of them are benign, but it is very insightful because it it makes you realize. And you know, I, I've heard this before, but of course, there's things living on us and in us that are not inherently part of us, but they're key to our functioning. Like people talk about their gut biome or you know mm -hmm. your ability to digest food because of what's living in your gastrointestinal system. The the other thing I was thinking of was. Uh, a couple of books by uh, David George Haskell, where he's taken very sensitive microphones of the type that ornithologists use to record birdsong. And he's listened to the sound that plants make. And when trees are under drought stress, for example, I mean, I imagine it like, you know, like Rice Krispie cereal, they snap, crackle and pop. You can hear things happening in the tree structure as the um, cellular material, the xylem that transmit water are under stress. And they're having it's what's called cavitation. They're bubbles imploding and exploding in their system. So yes, trees don't think about what they're doing, but they respond to stresses uh, in themselves or in their environment more like animals than I, I think we ever thought about in the past. Yeah, or how like certain flowers will open and then face the sun and track the sun all day. Like the, the, they move, you know, they don't just sway in the wind. There are cellular processes happening to you know, create movement. Um, let's let's move to a more obvious, uh, uh, you know, part of the natural world that moves and so forth. Uh, with beavers, you have a great chapter about um, these meadows created, you know, by beaver dams, and you you write uh, the magic of beavers might seem obvious, right? Like, oh yeah, they make a dam, it creates a big pool, ta-da! But you say that's not the that's not that's just barely the surface of like the magic of what's happening uh, in these these meadows and beaver dams. Talk to us about what else might be happening that we don't know of. Well, the the beavers, if they're in a narrow valley, they can just build a dam and you'll have a pond upstream of it. But what I was describing in there was where you have a wider valley floor and the beavers build multiple dams through time. They they don't build dams like we do. They're not always you know, straight and exactly perpendicular to flow. They can be more like a a sinuous line across the floodplain. Some of them are even parallel to the main channel because they're trying to pond water coming in on a tributary or a hillside sleep or spring. And the beavers move a lot, around a lot. So they'll build a, a lodge and they'll have a series of dams associated with that. And then they'll move somewhere else in the valley. And those old ponds will gradually start to fill in. And depending on the setting, that can take decades um, to more than a century. But what you end up with is this very patchy landscape or this mosaic. So you've got active dams and ponds. You've got old ponds that are gradually filling in. You've got old dams that are vegetated and host a different type of vegetation than in the, the pond right next to them. So you have this tremendous diversity of habitats for a wide variety of organisms. And everything that ecologists have looked at tend to be more diverse and more abundant in these beaver-modified river corridors. And that starts with microbial communities through aquatic insects, fish, amphibians, reptiles, birds, uh, many of the terrestrial mammals or semi-aquatic mammals that come into the river corridor are benefited by this habitat diversity from beavers. So that's the, the biological side. On the physical side, 
you know, if the simplest way to think of a river is it's like a canal. Things go downstream. End of story. And much of what we've done is to make rivers more like canals. We, we've straightened them. We've made them more uniform. We've tried to increase the conveyance or the downstream movement of water in particular. But natural rivers have a lot of interruptions. They have beaver dams. They have log jams. They have lakes on them. They, they're lots of places where you can store things, at least temporarily, before the downstream movement continues. So if you have a beaver modifying a river corridor and creating all this patchiness, this mosaic, when you have a big flood that comes in, for example, it doesn't just follow one channel downstream and create a very large flood peak. Some of the water can spread over bank into these abandoned or active ponds or into secondary channels that branch and rejoin the main channel. Some of it just gets slowed down, moving through the dense vegetation. So you reduce the magnitude of the flood peak or attenuate the flood. You, you have storage. Some of that water that's stored infiltrates and it goes into the groundwater at that site. So it can then be released later in the season. You're also storing anything that moves with the water. So you're storing sediment. Instead of having this giant amount of sediment coming through on a high flood, you're storing it in the beaver meadow and gradually releasing it. You're storing organic material. That's carbon, nitrogen, phosphorus, those excess nutrients that can be a problem for drinking water supplies. If you can store them in lots of dispersed places in the headwaters and lots of beaver meadows, that creates much better water quality downstream. So both in terms of um, reducing some of the downstream hazards associated with extra water and sediment or extra nutrients and in providing the habitat abundance and uh, diversity, beavers are just great. I've become a, I didn't know much about them originally, uh, but I've become a big fan of beavers. Wait, but you're right. You said you cannot swiftly cross a beaver meadow, right? It's just tangled mess of logs and, and it's kind of some swampy wetlands and stuff. But then you say, but why would you want to? And I just, that really kind of captures, you know, the natural curiosity of a scientist. Like, why would I want to move through this landscape so quickly when there's like so much to explore, right? <laughs> Absolutely. I've, I've seen, I've worked most in the beaver meadow um, in Rocky Mountain National Park, and I've seen everything from amphibians to small mammals to bird species that I haven't seen on other parts of the river network uh, in that area. And it's partly because I, you can't move fast. <laughs> or if you mm. do, if you try to, you're going to be in the water or on your face one way or another. You're going to fall. Th those uh, beaver meadows do host more diversity than a lot of other uh, spaces. So but you are also forced to move slowly through it. So you're seeing seeing that diversity that otherwise yes. it might be like, oh, this dismal swampy area, a lot of mosquitoes. We got to move through this quickly. Um, and maybe maybe after we finish recording, I'll pick your brain on uh, your, your tips for mosquito uh, abatement because uh, oh, well, it, it was really the, up at the cabin this year. It was apocalyptic levels of mosquitoes. Oh, man. <laughs> they, they were bad this year in the Western U.S., but, you know, I, the mosquitoes are not an issue in the beaver meadows that I've worked in because there are also lots of dragonflies. Oh, lots of things to eat then. Yep. Ah. And uh, I'm sure some of the songbirds are eating mosquitoes too. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe we should pivot a little bit to um, uh, to the other book. Uh, we've been talking mostly about some of this stuff out of Something in the Ranges and for listeners, there's so, so, so much more. These are very slim volumes. They're not very long, but they are packed with just so much, so much stuff. Um, in something in the ranges, you do talk quite a bit about trees, and there's a little bit of overlap in content. But um, 
uh, in this other book, um, which I believe was the is the more recent one. I think it was yes. 2022. Okay. Um, Deadwood, The Afterlife of Trees. I was really interested. Um, I thought about trees a lot. Um, here at the Red Center, we fund a lot of uh, scientific research. And so I'm always reading funding proposals about, you know, trees and all this stuff. And I feel like I have an okay understanding of it. Um, but I've never really thought much about dead trees and um, what you call morticulture um, and, and how we need to uh, invest more in studying not just the living uh, trees or other things, but what happens to them and what do they do with the ecosystem after they after they die. Um, uh, and, and you trace, you, you tell three stories. I think this is a really, I don't know how long, how, how'd you come up with this framing device? You tell a story of a tree in, uh, of a spruce in the Rocky Mountains, a redwood cedar on the Olympic Peninsula in Washington, and then a poplar, a balsam poplar yes, uh, up in, in Canada. How did you come up with this idea of, I'm going to frame this all around telling kind of the entire life history of each of these three trees? Well, the original title was A Tale of Three Trees. Um, so I was playing on, of course, A Tale of Two Cities. Uh -huh. I like to read biographies. And I have often thought when I'm getting very disturbed about environmental issues, we should write a biography of an animal and you know, show this beautiful, complex life it's having. And then all of a sudden it gets shot and that's the end of it. It's, it would be such a dramatic way of just bringing it home. What what happens when someone shoots an animal or, or cuts down a tree? Um, so I, I wanted to follow that biographical framework. And in a human biography, it usually doesn't end when the person dies. I mean, the the biographer talks about their legacy, what whatever it is, whatever their life work was, or, or a biography is being written about them because we still remember them or their effects continue. So I wanted to do the same thing with the trees. And I put as much emphasis on what happens after the tree dies, partly because there are an awful lot of books written about trees while they're alive which is great. So it, it's a much more visible and uh, well-known topic. But I wanted to emphasize what happens after they die. And partly because um, as a person who studies rivers, I'm mostly focused on what the dead wood is doing more than the living trees. And that's just because of the way I approach rivers. So I should say that that morticulture term, I, I did not coin that. That comes from Mark Harmon, who is at Oregon State University. And I just thought it was really appropriate. We have silviculture. Why don't we think about morticulture? It's, you know, dead wood. Well, we just need to get rid of it, get it out of the way is, is usually the attitude. And it's very, turns out the dead wood is arguably as important as living wood. What happens with a forest when we manage forests in such a way that we're removing the fallen or, or dead trees and not allowing them to you know, rot, decompose, return to the soil? How, how does that change that forest ecosystem? It impoverishes it. It removes, within the forest itself, it removes all the functions that are fulfilled by dead wood, which are providing habitat and nutrients for a wide variety of organisms from, again, microbes and fungi up through, you know, think about all the cavity nesting birds that live in standing dead trees or snags. Turns out there's an awful lot of organisms that live in fallen dead wood, and some of them are not small. Things like pine martens uh, or wolverines use those sites. Uh, the, some of the dead wood also goes into the river and is carried downstream. So if you remove the dead wood, you're removing the functions that the dead wood performs in the river. Some of that 
wood moving down the river goes to coastal areas. Think about driftwood that you see on beaches. Some of it makes it all the way out into the deepest parts of the ocean floor, the abyssal plains. Yeah, this, this blew me away. Well, me too. When yeah. I first learned about it, there are microbial ecologists who study that. And the dead wood that sinks into the ocean floor, the, the abyssal plains have got to be the harshest environment on earth. I mean, it's dark, it's cold, it's very, very high pressure, and there's limited nutrients. So things that sink from the ocean surface, including whale carcasses and driftwood that becomes waterlogged, is uh, a source of nutrients and habitat for some of these deep sea organisms. And the descriptions that I read were the scientists are talking about them as though they're coral reefs. They're, they're hotspots of biodiversity and biomass on the ocean floor. Going back to the, the coastlines, you know, th this is much more obvious, but you can see driftwood and people have looked at the effects that it has in those coastal environments. It's very important for a variety of, again, very small creatures, um, invertebrates and some small vertebrates. It's important for plants. And they've compared studies or they've compared sites where beaches are cleaned, as it's called, where wood is removed, and they found that they're biologically impoverished compared to the sites where driftwood is allowed to remain. So everything from the the forest where the wood originates, where you remove habitat and nutrients if you take the wood out to the deep sea, can be affected by this. I think a lot of people who visit the beach you know, like Pacific Northwest beaches where there's just this, you know, wherever the high tide is, there's this sometimes, you know, a half, you know, half a football field of driftwood that you have to kind of clamber over to get out to the beach. And that driftwood, it's bleached white, it's bone dry, and it seems well dead, but also dead in the sense of like, it might as well just be rocks. Like what nutrients could there be? It doesn't seem like it could provide anything, but but you're saying it does, even in that state as it decomposes, it's all organic material, which is going to be released. Absolutely. And it may look like stones to us, but not to the microbes that can colonize it. And even if the wood itself was completely inert, it's creating a little microenvironment where there's a little more moisture, there's shelter from the wind. So that's where plants can germinate. And that's where some of these very small invertebrates can live. So there are organisms that live within the wood, even if you can't see them on the surface. And then there are organisms that live in the environments right around the wood that the wood creates, especially if you've got a pile of driftwood. This is not in your book, and this is maybe off topic, but um, I'm just curious. Do we have an example of scientists out on the abyssal plain, you know, in the middle of the ocean, or maybe way down far a coastline, finding trees and being, being able to identify where it came from or how far it traveled? Like, do we have an example of like the most out of place, longest trip that a dead tree took? I don't know about the longest, but yes, there are people who study driftwood trajectories, particularly in the Arctic Ocean. There's a lot of work on that because many of the places where the wood ends up are wood impoverished. So for example, Canada's Mackenzie River, which is one of the ones that I focus on in, in dead wood, has historically been known as a major source of driftwood to the Arctic Ocean. That driftwood in turn is the primary source of wood for people living in Greenland. And it has been for centuries because there really aren't any trees in Greenland. And how many miles is it from the mouth of the Mackenzie River to, you know, like the eastern shores of Greenland or western shores of Greenland? Off the top of my head, I don't know, unfortunately. I, I do know that... It's a really long wood, way. Like, it, yeah, no, it, it's, it's um, more than a thousand miles. Yeah. And the wood gets there in part because of what the sea ice is doing. It's not just the water currents that are moving it. A lot of the driftwood is transported by being frozen into sea ice. 
So some of the Siberian rivers are also major sources of wood to the Arctic Ocean. But what's one of the things that's fascinating is that the place names and the traditions of many of the indigenous peoples living along the Arctic Ocean reflect places where they can reliably find driftwood. And those are very important to them culturally, both because of the wood itself, which can be used for fuel or for building materials, but also because the fish like the driftwood. So those are good places to harvest fish. But to get back to your original question of, of how this is traced, people look at isotopes in the driftwood itself, and they can tell what type of species it was and where it came from by looking at the isotopes of living trees in potential source areas. We have a, an archaeologist here who um, I went out collecting um, dead rodents with um, a couple of years ago because they were um, measuring the stront strontium isotope levels, I think it was, in these rodents' teeth. Um, and then comparing it with uh, rodent remains they found in archaeological sites to be able to tell like, okay, so these people that were living out here on Utah Lake, can we figure out where they were, like which um, little canyon in the Wasatch they were hunting in? Because you can tell the differences from the strontium ice, radioactive isotope levels. Anyways, it was all over my head, but we went out and you know, we're trapping r rodents in the mountains. <laughs> the things you do when you know scientists, it's a, it's a, it's a dangerous, dangerous world out there. <laughs> well, there's, there's isotopes are like magic for scientists because all living organisms incorporate them, even um, very trace amounts like strontium. So fish have bones in their ears called otoliths and they have growth rings and you can tell where the fish has been and what it's been eating by looking at those otoliths. Coral colonies have annual growth rings. You can tell where the nutrients that are feeding them are coming from, like which river is the source if they're offshore coral colonies. Trees have isotopes. We have isotopes. Mm -hmm. You know, they've, the archaeologists or anthropologists have gone back and looked at past diets based on what's in the teeth and skeletons in archaeological sites. So, yeah, there, there are a lot of isotopic tools that you can use to understand the history of an organism, including after death. Maybe we should uh, pivot a little bit back to the West and um, and trees, and maybe uh, maybe talk a little bit about wildfire. Uh, I think when people think of forests, or if they are like, oh, this book on dead wood, the afterlife of trees, I think like wildfire is what a lot of people are going to think of. But there's some kind of unanticipated relationships between um, dead trees and wildfire. The the intuitive relationship that we might assume is the more uh say say uh these pine beetles have you know killed off huge swaths like this is going to be a huge wildfire risk but you talk about some cases in which actually it re might reduce the wildfire risk um so talk to us a little bit about the relationship between dead wood and uh, natural wildfires and, and maybe even some of the seemingly unnatural mega fires that we've been seeing, which have some of their uh, causes and in, in you know forest management decisions that we've made, you know, over past years. Yeah, well, if I, I start with the pine beetles and the fire, I think that's a message that that never was effectively absorbed by non-scientists. Although I know many of my colleagues here at Colorado State University who are forest ecologists were really trying to get that message out when the pine beetle first came to Colorado. The issue is that. Uh, the intensity and or severity of a fire depends on many different factors, but certainly one of them is the fuel loading. So how much is available to burn and what's the condition of that material that could burn? And living conifers in particular have a lot of sap that's very flammable. So when pine beetles kill a tree, it's extremely flammable initially when it's still got the needles on and they're in that orange stage. 
But once the needles drop off and the tree dries out, there's there's no sap production anymore. That dead wood is actually less flammable than living wood. And I know of at least one example on the west side of Rocky Mountain National Park where a fire was burning pretty intensely. And then it hit a stand of beetle-killed pine trees that were in that stage where they'd been dead for a while and the fire stopped. But that's not what people think of when they think of um, dead wood. So you know, some dead wood can be highly flammable if it's dry, but other may not, may be less flammable than living trees. And after those snags fall and kind of fill, start filling in the, um, the under, uh, what do you call it? You know, the understory like, or the yeah, the ground, understory, the ground yeah. level with fallen trees and stuff. That still is less of, it's spreading le- less fuel for these high intensity fires than that, a living tree with all the sap and really flammable stuff up that, in the in, in that, the crown. That depends a lot on the place you're in. So, for example, if you're in the Pacific Northwest, those trees are quite moist. They're covered in moss. They have a lot of water still in the the wood itself. They're less flammable. There have been studies in South Africa and Australia that have shown that even if the trees have been dead for several years, if they're on the ground, they can serve as what are called ladder fuels, where they are quite flammable, and that can help the flames get up into the canopy. And those studies that I'm thinking of have been done in river corridors where the river creates big log jams in the floodplain, and those are actually quite flammable. And this this is coming from Kruger National Park in South Africa. And but the log jam is flammable? Yeah. Because in the, middle, in the middle of a river? No, in the middle of the floodplain. In the middle of the floodplain. So okay. during the dry season. Okay. So you know, a big flood deposited a log jam on the floodplain. Now the floodplain's dry. But Particularly in Australia, the the eucalypts are highly flammable. So if there's still any sap in those, they can serve as these ladder fuels. So the short answer to your original question is, in some cases, the downwood is less flammable. In others, it's more flammable. It really depends on the setting. And I think it would depend on things like time of the year. If you have downwood absorbing moisture during periods when the snow is melting, for example, it's going to be less flammable than maybe at the height of summer. Well, like, so another example of, you know, we just can't make assumptions about what what we think these intuitive relationships might be. It's always more, it's always more complex. Again, getting to the humility that you say we need to approach this all with, um, be ready to learn something new and to not be what you expected, which makes management of, uh, you know, these landscapes so challenging. You know, we, we want to live in them. We want to live close to them. We want to use their resources. And so we have you know, these now over a century of management plans here in the West and, you know, some of the biggest, you know, ecological crises we're facing right now are, you know, direct results of management decisions that were made. We just didn't understand kind of the unforeseen consequences. Yeah. You know, I don't think we can avoid this at any point in time. We're using our existing knowledge and our understanding of the system. I've just been reading a book about, life in the 17th century and, and what medical practice was like. And it, it's horrific if you meet it, read it now, but they were acting on their conceptual model of you know, the balance of humors and, and what you needed to do to help the body heal. And it horrifies us now because we have different conceptual models and different understanding, but it, I think it's the same with natural resource management. And we tried to put out all fires. The forest service had a policy of trying to put out all fires by, I think it was 10 or 11 o'clock mm-hmm. the next day. Um, based on the understanding at that time and that understanding changes. So I guess the humility comment is just recognizing that at any point in time, including right now, our understanding is limited and we need to proceed with caution because we don't know all the answers. And sometimes we're really, really wrong in what we think we know. 
Well, I was going to ask for maybe a closing statement, but maybe that's maybe that's it. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, we need to be humble in the natural world and uh, be ready to learn new things and um, be ready for our best uh, intentioned efforts to go horribly wrong uh, sometimes. And that's OK. Uh, but that's why we uh, support the sciences. And that's why we have people like you making careers studying this stuff. Right. Um, I am really thrilled that people like you are translating the science uh, into a format in these books that that anyone could pick up and read. And I mean, as I joked at the beginning, you know, I tried to describe this the, the little soil snake uh, phenomenon to my family, and I obviously uh, hadn't learned it quite as well as I thought. But um, you know, after a couple more reads, I think I could describe it. Uh, um, maybe I'll try to describe it to my neighbor and see if I can uh, do it. But uh, but this is really um, important and powerful work to make this legible to the general public. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. I would just emphasize, of course, that, you know, I was talking about what forest ecologists do and what marine microbiologists do. I'm just, I'm partly drawing on my own research, but a lot of it is I'm drawing on other people's research because I have the scientific vocabulary to be able to read their papers and understand what they're saying. So I'm kind of a mouthpiece for many scientific communities. Um, and I'm be really glad if, if people read and enjoy and learn from these books. Um, is there anything you're working on uh, next or in the future that we could, should be looking for? At the moment, I'm actually working on a research monograph on fire, um, so that will be less accessible, but that's the current project. There's, It's very much in the planning stages. Uh, there's, there's a series of books called How to Read A, and then you fill in the blank. Like There's How to Read an Insect, How to Read a Bird. Um, they, there's hopefully going to be one on how to read a river that I'll be writing, but it's still, it, it's a, it's called Unipress and they look for sponsors for each book. So they're currently in the planning stages, but I, I hope to be able to read, to write how to read a river. Well, that'd be great. Um, well, thank you so much for your time, uh, for your work. And um, this has really been a, a pleasure. Um, I sometimes do actually attend some science-y conferences. So maybe there's a chance that we'll uh, overlap at some point. Um, but uh, I, I, I hope we do. So this thank has been you. a lot of fun. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. It's been fun for me too. All right. Take care, Ellen. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll subscribe and listen every month. Please leave us a review on whatever app or platform you're listening through. Or follow us on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast or on Twitter at Writing West, where you can get updates and leave comments. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Rudd Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. We're an interdisciplinary research center that supports academic research and the promotion of public understandings about the North American West. We host regular public lectures, which we live stream, have an annual funding cycle with award, grant, and fellowship categories that nearly anyone researching or working on the region from any disciplinary approach or towards any final product can apply. Learn more at redcenter.byu.edu. That's R-E-D-D -D Center. Our theme music was provided by local Utah composer Micah Dahl Anderson. Find him at Micah, D-A-H-L, Dahl, Anderson, with an O, dot com. I'll put a link in the episode description. My name is Brendan Rensink. I serve as the podcast host, producer, and just about everything else. So you can direct any praise or critique my way. 
I'm author and editor of a number of books on the West, borderlands, native peoples, genocide studies, religion, and the environment. Recently, my book, Native But Foreign, Indigenous Immigrants and Refugees in the North American Borderlands, published by Texas A&M University Press in 2018, won the Best Historical Nonfiction Book Award from the Western Writers of America. In an anthology I co-edited with P. Jane Hafen, entitled Essays on American Indian and Mormon History, published by the University of Utah Press in 2019, won the Metcalf Best Anthology Book Prize from the John Whitmer Historical Association. Here at the Red Center, I'm also general editor and project manager of a great digital history, uh, public history project named Intermountain Histories. It's a free mobile app and website, uh, intermountainhistories.org, that curates student-researched and written micro-histories of the region, complete with archival photos, bibliographies, and more. To contact me about the podcast, my own research, or anything else, head to bwrensink, that's R-E-N-S-I-N-K, Dot org, or follow me on Twitter at Brendan W. Rensink. Until next month, be well, be curious, and be kind. Cheers. <laughs>